So this evening we'll continue on in our survey through the canons of Dort. We will be looking at the fifth heading, article number eight, the certainty of this preservation. And then also following that, we will open up God's Word to First Peter chapter 5, and we'll read 1 through 11, but we'll focus on verse 10. So, fifth heading, Kansas Dort, Article 8. So it is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally, sorry, forfeit faith and grace totally, nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves, this is not easily, this not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. Since His plan cannot be changed, His promise cannot fail, the calling according to His purpose cannot be revoked. The merit of Christ as well as His interceding and preserving cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. And then I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, we'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and focusing on verse number 10. First Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And now our text. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, Father, reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, Peter writes a letter encouraging many Christians. This group of elect Christian exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithani, an area that spans 120,000 square miles. See, the church is expanding, and with expansion comes the task of conformity and unity. So Peter shows how this ought to be practiced, not only for Christian-to-Christian relations and the building up of his church, but Peter shows how Christians should engage in a non-Christian society. Many themes run through the pages of 1 Peter, but there are three that pop out of the pages, and that's suffering, calling, and hope. So 1 Peter's encouragement to these churches is where we'll look for the certainty of your preservation. So our theme this evening as we examine Scripture is this. Your certainty of preservation lies in the grace of God. And we'll look at this at three points. First, suffering. Second, in glory. And third, grace. Imagine what it might have, been, what it might have looked like for these early Christians. The church is showing growth throughout these regions There are new Christians mixed in with mature Christians trying to navigate how to live in holy conformity in this non-Christian society. They would suffer from the constant battle of sin as they strive for holiness, all the while suffering persecution that comes with grasping the name of Christ and living like Him. The ancient world for Christians was not a nice place. Peter, aware of the various trials that the church has gone through, has suffered, and well aware of the trials for this church that are still to come. Many early Christians would have faced many serious threats if they did not conform to the immoral practices of the times. They would have been most likely criticized, mocked, discriminated against, or even brought up on false charges. And this treatment was not just restricted to the churches of these regions, but the Christians as a whole were suffering throughout the whole empire. And Peter reminds these Christians in chapter 4 of this letter, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests upon you. Or elsewhere in the letter, Peter reminds them not to repay evil with evil 
reviling with reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For this is why you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And it was Paul also that gave another encouragement in his letter to the Romans with the same kinds of themes. But these two lessons don't originate with Paul and Peter, but from Christ. Remember in John 15, Jesus explains to the disciples that if you were of the world, they would love their own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is no greater than his master. But also in Luke 6, Jesus exhorts you to do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. See, many years before these churches now experienced persecution from the outside world, Christ already showed them a plan of how to deal with this persecution from the outside world. By showing them something different. Showing kindness and love in the face of their enemies. By letting their gospel light shine. All the while, the empire was trying to convince Christians to bow the knee to Caesar. For these early Christians, their suffering could not be avoided without renouncing Christ. And this should be a warning to all of us. The threat of suffering is always going to be present in this life if the only way you can escape it is to renounce Christ. The threat is always a present danger if you are clinging to Christ. See, it could be in your lifetime that you might not be able to relate with the sufferings of the early church. Persecution from the world comes to us in many different angles of attack. But because you're not being beheaded or burnt on the stake, beaten or flogged, to give some of the cruder examples, this does not mean that you're not suffering persecution or some lesser form of Christian. Persecution comes differently for everyone. From the immature just finding their legs on this Christian trail to the mature Christians who have been walking the trail longer, who have larger rocks and roots to jump over. Yet what Christians of all ages understand together on this side of glory, both immature and mature alike, is the suffering at the hand of sin. Now here are three proof texts to show that sin is not something to be engaged with. First, all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 7, reads, If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Also in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And lastly, from 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, sin is waging a war against your soul to make you obey its desires, to make you obey its passions. See, sin will not play nice. Sin will use all its energy to satisfy its desires. And when you understand the war that sin is waging, you understand what suffering and denying yourself then really means. Sin is not to be taken lightly. It's not like you and sin are engaged in a pickleball match. When you engage in sin, when you engage sin, you're not engaging in sportsmanship. You're not complimenting sin when he makes a nice shot. You're not giving sin a point on a call too close to make. You're not thanking sin for the match, joking how sin got you this time, but look out because I'll get you next time. This is not how sin is engaging the war on your soul. Sin wants carnage of war. It wants to conquer and destroy and leave your soul in ruins, to plunder all your treasures and set fire to your city. It does not want to engage in a gentleman's game. If all that comes to mind when you hear sin is that it's wrong and God does not like it, then you do not understand sin and the damage that it causes. And you will not be prepared for it when you encounter it. If you think that sin does not require suffering, if conquering sin does not require suffering, maybe you should search and see what side of the battle line you're on. See if you're fighting the Christian fight or are you committing treason against your king? Sin is serious and it will rip and it will tear until it has destroyed your soul. It requires for the Christian suffering to rule over it. See, suffering on this pilgrimage is not a matter of if, but it's just a matter of when. So you might not get the full frontal attack from the world, but sin is and always will be waging war on your soul. But sin only remains on this side of glory. And that's the encouragement from Peter to the churches. He says that this suffering is only for a little while. 
after you suffered a little while. And what is that suffering compared to what you're called to? Well, what is that? See, interwoven in this letter is the theme of being called. And this calling isn't something that can be avoided. It's not something that you can ignore. It is a trumpet blast announcement from your king. Nor are you able to pick and choose what you're called to. You cannot blur those lines between the creator and the creature. See, it's Christ's realm, and it's his rule. And Peter explains the different ways that you're called through this Christian pilgrimage. And we'll survey these through 1 Peter. If you want to follow along, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 15. It says you're called to holiness, reminding them of the one who is the author of their calling is also holy. Therefore, you should be holy in your conduct. Peter tells the Christians that everything they do as Christians living in a non-Christian society are to be set apart, distinct from the culture around them. Be something different. Show them something different. Christians aren't engaging in immoral practices or sin, but denying the passions of their flesh. Next, Peter reminds them in chapter 2, verse 9, how distinct and set apart they are, refreshing their memory, that they were called into light. See, their identity was not where their home is now or where it used to be or by what type of jobs they had, but that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. See, darkness surrounded you, and you were blind to God and his goodness and mercy. You had that same wicked heart that was in, revealed in Psalm 10. But he called you out of that darkness into light to see the glory of His Son. Now, if you're thinking that suffering is not something that Christians have to engage in while they make their way through this Christian pilgrimage, hopefully Peter will hammer this point home in chapter 2, verse 21. He states, this is the reason that you're called. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. See, the same pattern that Christ lived is the same pattern that you were called to. See, it's his realm. It's his root. Or it's his rule. It's his root. He left footprints to follow, a narrow trail through the woods that's distinct from that broad way that leads to destruction. And after you follow Christ's route, you will come to the same destination that he was called to, 
eternal glory. And you're called to eternal glory. Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And when you contrast that with the sufferings of a little while, you understand what Paul is getting at when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Or when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, nothing you have seen or heard will compare to that glory. See, the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed. The path of Christ is your path. And the only way it leads to eternal glory is following after Him. Your whole identity is in Christ. God chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. In Him you have received redemption through His blood. In Him you have obtained an inheritance. In Him you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Christ and nothing else. It's the narrow way that leads to eternal glory. And Peter sets the Christian eyes on the heavens, focusing on that future day when God completes the act of the consummation of all things, the completion of His glorious kingdom. To better illustrate their future outlook, Peter uses four verbs with a future tense. You see that at the end of verse 10. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. He outlines that future day for the Christian to set their hope upon. A day when you will be restored where all the wrongs are made right. A place without suffering. You'll be confirmed, no longer struggling with doubts about your faith, able to worship God without the nagging harassment of sin. No longer wavering in unbelief. Where faith will for the first time be by sight. It will be a future day of strength where the Christian will not suffer affliction at the hands of the wicked. No longer will the Christians be demised to the position of weakness, but they will reign with Christ as adopted sons and daughters of the living God. It will be a day where you will be established in the spiritual house of God with Christ Jesus as your cornerstone. So we have looked at the present reality of the Christian who is called to follow the path of Christ, which is a path of suffering. And although for only a short while, on the other hand, God called you to a future reality of that of eternal glory, where He will restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. But does that mean, as one commentator stated, that resources for living are found in the knowledge of the ultimate end? 
Does all the Christian have to look forward to is a future grace? Is the only hope for the Christian a look at what is to come? What about now? What about for grace when I struggle now? What about the sin that wants to conquer me now? No, God is a God of all grace. Not only a God of future grace. See, God's grace is never limited in quantity or out of stock. It's never only limited to requests from Christians because there's a supply shortage. He is the God of all grace. And it is that grace and power that are guarding you. He has given sufficient grace for you. Even though you sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you are justified by His grace. He has the grace to complete the good work He started in you, to see it all the way to completion. He gives you the grace to hear the confession of your sins. And not only the grace to hear them, but to forgive them and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. By His grace, He gives you the strength to work harder than any of them. You all have different gifts according to the grace that has been given to you. And you can be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And this grace is increased to those who are humble. He is the God of all graces, sustaining you every step of the way. And this is the essence of what Article 5.8 is trying to capture. Grace is how you get from suffering to glory. It's not because anything inside of you that causes this preservation. It's a work of the triune God. He is the reason for your preservation because He set His mark on you. He called you to this life. And if He called you, His plans cannot change, nor will His promises fail. This calling cannot be revoked. Not only that, but the merit of Christ's work cannot be removed. You will not have placed back upon your back the guilt of sin or that righteous garment ripped from you, but also that seal of the Holy Spirit cannot be removed nor canceled. If God has called you to eternal glory, then His plans cannot change. His promises cannot fail. It's in Him that you find all your way all the way to the end. There's nothing inside of you. You cannot claim anything from coming from yourself, but you realize that it rests on God alone. It's not because of what's inside of you, but it's because of what's inside of Him, and that's grace. See, this means that you limit 
your grace intake when you're trying to do it yourself. Realize that, that it rests on God alone. And apart from Him, that you, you can do nothing. But be careful. This is not an excuse to do nothing. A Puritan once said, you must not say because Christ must do all, therefore I must do nothing, but rather work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, Christ is working in you, and you are working out your salvation. These two aren't abrasive to each other. They're not intention. But they rather express rank. That Christ's work in you is greater than the work that you're doing yourself. You still need to work because you're called by Him to holiness. Called to serve Him. You have the fountain of grace at your disposal. The God of all grace that can give you all strength. That means when you're run down at your job, the God of all grace can give you strength. When you're tired and you roll out of bed exhausted because you were up all night with kids, Think of Christ before coffee and seek Christ and His supply of grace. If you're afraid to open up about your faith and share what Christ has done in your life, there's grace for that. Christ's grace can overcome your doubts. Do you struggle with eyes that gravitate to the world and all the shiny things in it? Come to Christ. Come to his living fountain of grace. Are you a mediocre friend, spouse, parent, teacher, laborer, farmer, student? There's grace for that but you cannot find it in yourself. It comes from God. Also, as you wage war against that battle against sin, and that sin conquers you, there's grace for that. You only need to look to Christ No matter the sin you believe is too vile for grace, you're wrong. God has grace for that. Maybe you doubt it. Suppose you don't believe that God and His grace, that it's insufficient to overcome any sin. This means that you've heard the battle cry of sin. See, and just like the walls of Jericho, this shout of unbelief, this battle cry from sin will make the walls around your soul crumble. Run from that cry of sin. 
to the cross and lay your burden upon Christ. Humble yourself at the cross and you will see for yourself the true meaning of grace. Or do you want to remain in your sin, your struggle, your toil, letting it ravage your soul because you're too proud? God has grace for that. Because He's the God of all grace. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how do you fulfill your calling of holiness, of serving? How do you wage war on sin? How do you endure the persecution of the world? How do you do all this and receive eternal glory? You look to the God of all graces, and find the gracious gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. You look at Him and you remember the promise that because of His completed work, because of the work that Christ completed on the cross, the Father will give to the Son a bride. This is the certainty of your preservation because you were promised to the Son. And God will never break His promises. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You just astounded at the grace that You have that you're willing to give it to those who ask for it, that those who humble themselves before you give it to them. Grace abounding. Father, we're thankful for this grace, knowing that our sufferings are only a little while, but that we are called to eternal glory. And when we contrast those, what are our sufferings? But although our suffering feels so real now, Lord, we thank You that we know that the certainty of our preservation lies outside of ourselves, but in a promise made to the Son. That You would give to Him a bride spotless and pure. That those who look to Christ become part of that promise. And that we can have full assurance that we'll make it through our sufferings as we walk this Christian pilgrimage all the way to eternal glory where we can look for the first time where faith becomes sight at our gracious, magnificent Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's through His name that we pray. Amen.